We'll now move forward to the reading of Holy Scripture. And the passage that we're reading today is going to be from Luke chapter 7. Our focus, our text for today, will be the verses 29 to 35, but to give it a bit of context, as it's part of a, a broader narrative, we'll be reading first starting at verse 18 and then moving on to verse 35. This gives us a bit of a sense of the discussion that was going on in Jesus' day surrounding who Jesus was. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, the miracles that had been taking place in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And our text begins here. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, So what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. So far, the word of God. beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you can almost imagine the setting that's laid out before Jesus today. 
And it's quite possible that he would have been preaching in a very public place, like a marketplace or some other similar setting. And as he's preaching and teaching, there are those who are standing around, who are adults, who are listening very carefully to him, very, very closely to him. And perhaps in the background, you can see the young children who are running back and forth through the marketplace, who have come along with their parents, and they're shouting to each other, calling out to each other, and they're playing together. And then you get what comes just before our passage here today, where John has sent some messengers to Jesus Christ. John wanted to be reaffirmed and comforted by the fact that Jesus was indeed who he said he was before he himself would face his death. His execution was hanging over his head. And so Jesus comforts him by speaking to him the words of the prophet Isaiah, showing that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of prophecy, and that those who listened to John, those who listened to Jesus, would be able to enjoy the riches of this kingdom blessing. And you get two responses coming forward you get two very different responses coming forward. Those who freely embrace this teaching of Jesus Christ as the children are running about them in the market. Those who praise God, who justify God, who declare God to be right and righteous. And then you also get those who scoff, who scorn, and who reject and it's within the context of this that Jesus Christ brings forward his next teaching. Our Lord Jesus begins with these words, To what then shall I compare this generation? And what are they like? With these words, he begins a critique of the people of this world. But which people? Which generation? Is this a warning that we as well can take to heart? Today we'll look at two sets of children, the children of the marketplace and the children of wisdom. And we'll see the words of Jesus, that wisdom is proved right by her children. So first we'll see the fickle children of this generation. Next we'll look at playing in the marketplace, justifying why others won't play with them. And then last of all, the faithful children of wisdom. When Jesus says, what shall I liken the men of this generation and what are they like? Our first thought might be that he's talking about the generation that he's living among, right? Every man, woman, and child alive at the time of his ministry. But when we see the example that he gives, that example that he follows, we get a distinct idea that this is not a flattering picture. And it becomes a little puzzling because we really did see two responses to his words and actions. In the first place, people justify God for what Jesus said. That's to say they, they praise him and they confessed that God is right. Jesus 
had just said that they needed the words of John. They needed the baptism of John. He essentially had told them that they needed to repent of sin. That each one of them needed to listen to what John had taught, to humble themselves and to ask for forgiveness, to live a life of humility in that way. That's what was wrapped up in the baptism of John. That's what Jesus was saying when he spoke approvingly of the baptism of John. While some rejected that message, others had praised God and said that he was right. They saw that this was true. Is it not unexpected then for him to rebuke them too? Well, it would be if that's what he was doing when he was speaking of this generation. But he's not actually including them in this rebuke, although it does speak a warning to them and to us. By using the language, this generation, our Lord is using Old Testament language. Often when this phrase is used by the prophets in the Old Testament, it's connected to those who hear the word of God, but don't want to submit themselves to it. It's not just a reference to those who are immediately living in Jesus' day and age. Rather, it's a phrase used in Old Testament texts to describe an attitude, to describe, more specifically, an attitude that is linked to the wilderness generation that had failed to remember the mighty acts of God and to be obedient to His will. That wilderness generation who had been led out of Egypt and who had seen the mighty acts of God but did not take them to heart and had left them behind and had walked away from God. They themselves were not allowed to enter into the land of Canaan. Only their children could. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God speaks of that wilderness generation in this way through Moses. They have corrupted themselves They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Likewise, in Jeremiah 2, verse 31, we read the prophet Jeremiah looking back on the wilderness generation and comparing it to his day. And in this way, we can see that it's not just one generation anymore, but it's turned into an idea a way that people look at a particular generation that's hard-hearted and rebellious. He brings it into his day, Jeremiah, and looking back on that wilderness generation and comparing it to his day, he says this in chapter 2, verse 31. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords? We will come no more to you. So this is not just something that's directed at a particular generation of people, but it's directed at the people of God, more specifically directed at the people of God who have a certain kind of heart towards God, a certain hardness of heart towards God. 
It's a serious call by our Lord Jesus. It's a reminder to hear the word of the Lord and not to turn in hardness of heart, rather to hear the word of the Lord and to obey. Today we could see how there will be times when others speak to you and me through the word of God. Times when brothers and sisters open the word and call you to return to a walk of faithfulness. Our Lord Jesus reminds us here to hear the word of the Lord and to obey, to listen to that call. And he calls those to account who, ignore, who would ignore him and, and downplay both his and John's message. And here he doesn't specifically call out the response of the tax collectors and sinners, those who responded with repentance coming to John and seeking change. He goes specifically to those who see themselves as being righteous. This is specifically a response of pride to those people that we see in verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. This brings us to the second thing that we can see. Jesus then transitions from speaking of this generation to the children in the marketplace. Our Lord Jesus Christ is, is pretty blunt with this generation here. The Pharisees who think pretty highly of themselves and yet are stubborn they see themselves as righteous and yet are stubborn, refusing to listen and to obey God's call to come in humility, to be willing to submit themselves to that washing of water, confessing their sin before God. Look at verse 32 here. Our Lord compares them to children in the marketplace. Children calling out to one another in the marketplace. Now what are those children doing? Children in those days would play big people, just like children these days. It's always interesting to hear from parents that their boys and girls sometimes pretend to play church at home, and they send someone around with a collecting bag. Or they pretend to be in their parents' business. There are also those children who spend hours going up and down their living room with toy tractors and harvesters, pretending to be farmers, planting and bringing in their crops. Children in those days would do the same. But instead of doing these kinds of things, they would often play wedding and funeral. They would play the flute and call the other children to dance as if they were at a wedding. Or else they would mourn and play a dirge, which is a funeral song. And they would weep and wail loudly, pretending to be playing at a funeral. These boys and girls that Jesus describes, though, they don't want to play with the children who are their leaders. And the children who play the flute or sing a dirge, they become grumpy. They become sour. They complain to the other children saying, we played, we took the lead, but you're not playing along. Those leaders who see themselves as righteous, Jesus says, are just like those children. 
Jesus and John are not playing by the rules that they had put out. Jesus and John are not accepting them as the righteous and the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. So they're becoming huffy and complaining. You're not playing by the rules that we set out. And what do children do when others play, won't play with them? Well, they find fault with their playmates. They say things like, well, I didn't want to play that game anyways. It's their complaints and their acting like children that leads them to the next concern that Jesus points out. Namely, that they begin to use their dislike of the fact that Jesus and John won't play by the rules that they set out in order to justify their response to Jesus and John. They bring out justification for their disobedience. We can see this in verses 33 to 34. When Jesus and John call them out for their disobedience to God's call to repent, they themselves immediately, it seems, began to bring up excuses. John the Baptist was far too conservative and strict in the minds of many of those Israelites. His withholding himself from things was just too much in their eyes. You have to understand how they saw John. He was a man who was, who was dressed in rough clothes. He ate wild locusts and honey. The poorest of the poor. His focus was not on collecting things for himself. His focus was on preaching the gospel. And basically, anything that would get him from one day to the next that was immediately close on hand, the food of the poorest of the poor, that's what he would eat in order to nourish him so that he could go on and continue to proclaim the gospel the next day. And they looked at that and they saw that as far too extreme. They wrote off his calls to repent as the ravings of someone who is demon-possessed, a madman. Jesus, on the other hand, couldn't be written off in that way. They knew he didn't do things like John, and so they couldn't call him demon-possessed. But then they looked at him, and they didn't like his message either. His message that was so similar to that of John the Baptist. They looked at him and then they saw the way that he visited and the way that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And then it became convenient for them to give him a different label. He was a liberal, a glutton, a drunkard. That's what a wine-bibber is. Someone who's a drunk. They didn't need to listen to him. Now, What's the purpose of doing and saying such things? What's the purpose of so quickly writing them off? They're justifying their disobedience. It's pretty convenient, isn't it? If they can make those kinds of claims. Because it means in their minds that if this person is demon-possessed and that person is a glutton and a drunkard, well, they don't have to listen to any of them. 
Now, how close to home does that hit for you? It might seem a little bit strange, but it hits closer to home than we think. How often have you and I slid into making excuses for disobedience? Maybe we don't say it out loud, but our gut reaction being one thing or another. Yeah, well, what about you? Look at this thing in your life, or that thing in your life. Who are you to call me out? Oh yes, but this person is way too extreme. Oh yes, but that person is way too liberal. I don't need to listen to anything that they have to say. We have the danger of slipping into that same mindset today, don't we? Of this, this pride and this desire for self-justification to rise up in our hearts. Someone confronts us or perhaps even the way that they live their life convicts us. We maybe find that we're being disobedient to God in an area or perhaps it's just a question of us being convicted that we could be able to live even more faithfully in our walk than we currently are. Now, this isn't just someone speaking into our lives and us disagreeing with them on the basis of Scripture. This is us feeling convicted by God through His Word and Spirit that they might very well be right. And yet, we excuse ourselves in our minds saying, yes, but they're extreme. Nobody else lives like that. Or, okay, sure, but look at the other issues in their lives. They're not perfect either. Or maybe we find ourselves starting to make such excuses for our own disobedience. Or maybe we find ourselves on the other side of the coin. You remember Matthew 18, don't you? How the first step in Matthew 18 is to speak to your brother or sister one-on-one -on -one, and then to talk to them and bring a friend if, if they still won't listen. And then bringing it to the leadership of the church if they're still not listening. Think for a moment about the discomfort that you can feel around the idea of speaking into someone else's life. What's the one, one of the main reasons that you feel uncomfortable? You are expecting the kind of response that Jesus is describing here. The justification the pointing at things in your own life, whether it might be accurate or not. You know that for yourself, you certainly aren't any more righteous than they. And so you feel uncomfortable that others may take notice of your own sins and weaknesses if you speak with them and say, well, what about you? What about your own life? But what's behind that response as we come to those whom we want to encourage in maintaining a faithful walk before God. It's the very same thing that we so often find living in our own hearts. Something that we can confess to them as well. Namely, justification. Justification for what we're doing rather than desire for an obedience that's rooted in the fear of the Lord. And we can humble ourselves once again. 
we can see that God has brought us to this place in order to speak and in order to encourage and in order to build up. We can humble ourselves before God again. Be willing to humble ourselves and recognize that at the front of our hearts should be the fear of the Lord. And it's this fear of the Lord that provides a good corrective for us as well as guiding us in how we interact together. And we'll look at this under the final point, the faithful children of wisdom. So what's Christ's response to the words and actions of those who oppose him? There are those who have received him and they have been joyful. And there are also those who have rejected him. His response to this is in verse 35. Nevertheless, wisdom is justified by her children. Which is to say, you might make these accusations, but time will tell the truth of my words. Wisdom will win out over disobedience. Wisdom will receive the blessing of the Lord. But what does this look like practically? What is wisdom? Well, we know the well-known words of Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with the fear of the Lord. An appropriate godly fear. That is to say, it begins with properly seeing who we are before God. It begins with seeing those very same things that those tax collectors and sinners were seeing as they came down to the river to pray. As they came down to the river to be baptized, the holiness of God. As John the Baptist thundered out over the crowds, speaking of the righteousness and the holiness and the purity of God, it struck their hearts. The recognition of their own great sin before God and their desperate need before God. A recognition of these words of Hebrews 12, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a good place to start, though not a good place to end. Yes, our response also involves us pressing everything that we have into service to Him, making every effort to seek out our salvation, not holding on to sin as dear, not downplaying those who challenge us on our sin or seeing it as something light, something that's no big deal, but rather hating the stain of sin and acknowledging how fearfully righteous God is and how much he hates sin. That's a good place to start, but not a good place to end. Since we come down to the river and we are washed in that confession of our own sin and our own great need, as John the Baptist did with, with those people recognizing their need for cleansing, since we recognize that we can't save ourselves just as they did, we recognize the call to look beyond ourselves. We can't stand on our own righteousness. And we recognize this. Clearly that won't stand before God. And that pushes away all self-justification. 
John the Baptist openly challenged all those who came to hear him to be baptized in the river. Come down and be baptized, be washed clean, confess. All were to recognize that even the best efforts at righteousness were not to be enough to confess that they needed a cleansing outside of themselves. To confess that they were looking ahead to the one who would cleanse them, as John had prophesied, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here we're being called to see our own need as we reflect as the children of wisdom to examine ourselves on what am I holding back? What am I justifying myself for? What kind of things in my life do I make excuses for? And to look ahead, to let go of these things and look ahead to those who would cleanse themselves with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, Jesus confronts the mindset of those who would justify themselves, of, of those who think more highly of their own righteousness. And he does this out of love because in a way it's easier for those who know themselves very well to be sinners, to humble themselves before God in this way. And we can see that in the response of the crowds, especially the tax collectors, those who were considered to have betrayed the people of God the most of everyone. Verse 29, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, having been baptized with that confession of repentance. In a way, it's easier for those who feel the weight of their sin to come before God and to justify Him and to praise Him. But if you look at yourself and think yourself to be relatively okay, having jumped through all the right hoops, it can be more challenging, especially if there are those who look at you from the outside and consider you to be righteous. Not impossible, but certainly more challenging. You can have the temptation to look at things and to downplay them. But here Christ calls you to challenge yourself on the places that you and I give excuses, where we don't want to bend to his will, to see that for what it is, but not to stop there, rather to look to the faithful children. And in that, he gives you and me such great comfort. Wisdom is proved right by her children. The faithful children are Jesus and John himself, first and foremost. John, having preached repentance and humility before the coming kingdom of God. John, having pointed the eyes of all of these people who came recognizing the weight of their own sin, humbling themselves, saying, there is one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, pointing them to the hope, the assurance, and the comfort that that gives, the joy that that gives. And Jesus, 
Jesus having ushered us into the kingdom of God through a righteousness that is not our own. Jesus who has come, who has purified us with his blood and who continues to cleanse us and to purify us every day through his spirit. Jesus who has justified us so that we no longer need to justify ourselves before God, but we can run to Him and cling to Him. Jesus, who has justified us before God in His one sacrifice on the cross, and who continues to sanctify us, purify us, cleanse us day by day as we move forward into the future. And if we hold fast onto this, then... Wisdom is proved right by her children. Not just those first two, Jesus and John. But it's Jesus' work that introduces us to the following faithful children. Those who follow in crowds behind Jesus Christ. Not those who dance to the tunes of the Pharisees and the scribes but those who listen to the music of the voice of their Savior. The faithful children. Not being those who have always been faithful, but rather those who have responded in humility and in faith and in joy to the teachings of Jesus and John. A teaching of repentance. A teaching of humbleness. A teaching that looks to the cleansing work of our Savior. So, loved ones, as we come into this coming week, let's hold on tight to this. Not downplaying our own sin, not so quick to brush each other off, but being willing to speak to each other and also being willing to receive what is said. Heeding the call to love, the call to repentance, to turning from sin. Let's walk alongside each other patiently, full of grace and love. And let's have our ears opened diligently to the words of the faithful, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one whose name, as we read in Revelation, is faithful and true. And as we do so, we will live and walk in the confidence that though the world will laugh and mock and maybe complain like the children in the marketplace, time will tell. As we live and walk in the way that Christ calls us to today, we'll see the change that comes from the children of wisdom. You'll see a growing confidence in the Lord, a love that changes you, a Savior who speaks of his nearness and who comforts and spurs you on through your fellow brothers and sisters as you look together to eternity and pursuing that goal of holiness. More than that, at the end of days, we'll see the final outcome. God will pour out his grace and mercy on all who come to him with this in mind. Wisdom will indeed be proved right by her children. Amen.